We are live here once again, Monday morning, 8 a.m., the Early Bird Podcast Sessions. Stefan Maillet with you at itssouls.com, the website. The sermon that I preached yesterday, titled Rescued and Transferred, looking at the portion of Scripture found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. Paul speaking to his brethren over there in Colossae, wonderful information during an age and time, of course, of beginnings regarding the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. The Acts of the Apostles, of course, recorded, witnessed accounts in the book of Acts. And uh, these epistles are wonderful. They hold great truth and are indeed inspired information. And we can gain comfort knowing that our brethren in the first century already went through the great many things you and I today go through. The many trials and challenges, discouragements, uncertainties, doubts, temptations. Yet still we can persevere, for they did. They had themselves found in a location geographically in a time historically where it was hostile to believe in a monotheistic God, in the Christ who had risen from the dead. It's not that the heathen-minded individuals believing in a god, everyone could have their own gods, lowercase g. It's when you began speaking of a one god, a living god, a capital G, that is above and beyond and powerful and authoritative and the only source, the only unique source in which we must find forgiveness of sins. Well, then we got a problem. And we see that today also in the modern world, quote unquote modern. And you know that, well, perhaps not yet so more in America, though it is quickly catching up to us over here in Canada. But in Canada, we've lost our identity. It is no longer seen as a Christian nation or Christian country. We are so, quote-unquote, diverse. Apparently, that's where we find our strength. We must coexist. Apparently, that is what we must do religiously. And so, we've diminished Christianity. We no longer see it as the proponent of responsibility to the priority of our citizenry. Not at all. No, now it's more pagan, heathen, Greek, Gentile, whatever what we can bring into the mix, whether it be Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, and every form of heathen or pagan practice that would call itself Christianity. Men have created Christianity in their own image. Their image is idolatrous. It is of a pagan or heathen nature, and they just stamp Christianity on it. Well, we know it's the same thing in Canada. If you profess that there is but one living God and the Bible is the sole source of religious information that must be rightly handled, the Christ is the only way, Acts 4.12, uh, you will be uh, become the recipient of persecution, obviously. And I know that's the same everywhere. But um, again, I'm speaking the illustration of our current age that is no different when it comes to the hostility of a corrupt government who hates the idea of a monotheistic God, a one God, a living God. And of course, our brethren in the first century, whether it be in Philippi or Thessalonica or uh, Ephesus, Colossae, Galatia, all these locations, they had to deal with hostile environments, hostile governing powers and principalities that were against 
the idea of a risen Christ, a risen God, and that Christ, the man we saw walk among us, named Jesus, was indeed God, the Son. There was opposition from government, there was opposition from Judaism, and there was, most sadly and most closely, opposition from one's family members, one's own kin, one's own blood, and one's own brethren in the church who were wolves in sheep's clothing or were deviant and delinquent in a great many behavioral ways and endeavors, agendas. And so the faithful child in Christ has a great deal to navigate through in this existence, whether in the first century uh, over there in the literature of the Bible or for us today and forevermore that uh, God allows the earth to, you know, keep going round and round. So... All these elements are certainly uh, activated uh, for our brethren in the first century. Paul knew this. Paul was well aware of what's taking place. And uh, God, of course, utilizing him as an instrument that would be utilized uh, for the greater good of the kingdom. And, of course, he was meant to suffer a great deal, and Paul did. Paul suffered a great deal for the cause of Christ, and he did so willingly and he did so with joy, knowing that his reward in heaven was greater than any pain he would receive in this vapor of a life. And um, we can read that information and gain comfort with everything we're dealing with today, whether it be, well, whether of all things lumped some in together, eh, hostile governments, persecution of that sort, loss, departures, betrayals, um, all these things we must go through, uh, health conditions, decaying, growing old, you know, saying bye to loved ones, all, all these things, they threaten us. Temptation is always around the corner as well. Temptation to participate in high-handed, rebellious, sinful activities, immoral activities, uh, whether it be uh, uh, sexual deviancies and perversions or uh, blind rage and violence towards murderous plots and, and revenge and retaliation. Uh, hate and, and racism, uh, uh, all of these elements of sinful practice are tempting uh, when we find ourselves in sorrow or hurt or, or uh, in moments in life where, of course, we may be, um, um, we may be quick to uh, contaminate ourselves with the world's remedy, which is always more chaos and division, right? Uh, but Paul had uh, the pen, uh, the penmanship of the Holy Spirit. He was governed by God. He was miraculously endowed by the Holy Spirit, the outpouring power of the Holy Spirit, to be accurate. We, of course, knew this as one who would be mentioned in the scriptures, uh, born uh, out of uh, an untimely position, meaning he was not the recipient of uh, the Holy Spirit and uh, the apostleship that took place during the age of the Messiah regarding the Twelve. He came afterwards, after, of course, one who would be recorded as hostile towards Christians. So he understood the environment of being on the governing side of things from the Jewish perspective against Christians, against the way. And now one who defends and advocates for Christ. He's... Uh, certainly had the wisdom to see both sides of the coin, if you will. And he has information, and that's the information we're going to be looking at from verses 13 through 20 in Colossians chapter 1. I do hope and pray that you will find benefit in this uh, a lesson, a sermon, whatever you want to call it. We're going to read through the scriptures and just discuss that. But um, 
if you do, please consider supporting the work, you know, please consider subscribing, uh, following, liking, giving the rumble, a comment, sharing the link far and wide if you if you find any worth in, in, in this information. If you find the substance of this content beneficial in your spiritual walk, please consider getting behind it and partaking in it. And you can do so certainly through a few options in the show notes there and also through uh, the various ways I've just now mentioned. Okay, so let's get into it and I'll open up the text on the screen here so you and I together can have a look at that. There we go. Oh, wrong thing there. Where is my video? There it is. All right. Colossians chapter 1, verses, 20, uh, verses 13 through 20. Again, individuals, our brethren here in the first century, having to deal with a great many poisonous uh, individuals and um, <clears throat> governing powers, and some of these, of course, philosophers of the age, right? <clears throat> Eloquent speakers in the community, uh, very persuasive, uh, well, uh, cleverly devised tales and all sorts of uh, mysticism and uh, sensationalism, um, superstition, rituals, you name it. It's found there for our brethren uh, to... Um, to experience and, and sadly a great many christians allowed that into the church and things of that nature but paul wants to give them the hope of course that they knew in christ that they should know in christ for christ is the truth and therein lies our salvation and no other and he explains how you know some might have wanted to tempt the christians with the idea that there are other ways we can coexist with all sorts of other religious views all of them lead to uh, different uh, heaven or the same heaven or a form of uh, peace in the afterworld or you know and, and Jesus is not the only way things like that could have been said could have been uh, prominent of course was and uh, could have been tempting for the Christians to kind of compromise and allow themselves to become worldly in that thought uh, interesting information, of course, prior to verses 13 through 20, Paul in his introduction, kind of a standard uh, introduction throughout his epistles, his letters, but yet, in um, um, how do I say that, quite some, some uh, deep insight into the way his penmanship operates with the Holy Spirit. When he says in chapter 1, Verse 1, of course, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who is he? Well, he belongs to Jesus Christ, of course, by which will, the will of God the Father, and Timothy, our brother, right? And then he says, here, here's what's interesting. We had a discussion about this, of course, uh, in our studies yesterday. Uh, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. There's a reason Paul uses that language. It's not just a, a uh, fill-in for the Holy Spirit saying, I don't know what to put in there, we'll just tag the name faithful in there. Well, saints, of course, is speaking of those who are holy, those who have been set apart, those who are different than the world. It's the same. It's not and regarding another category of individuals. We're not in the church saying, well, which one of us is a saint and which one of us is a brother? You know, it's the same, speaking of the same individual. And we'll see that uh, utilized, of course, uh, through descriptors. And we're going to see that spoken of the church in verses 13 through 20 when we see it through uh, various words that speak of the same location 
uh, yet in various descriptions. Well, here to the saints, speaking of those who have been set apart, those who are holy, made holy, and set apart, called out, of course, different than the world, and again, who are faithful brethren. Here's the here, here's the word that 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 we we should not just take for granted. Paul mentions the faithful brethren. You know why? Because he understands very well that in Colossae, the local congregation, there are brethren there who are not faithful. They are not faithful. Paul understands that. He spoke the same kind of language in all the others, letters and epistles, knowing that some among them, some among them are not faithful. So to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then he continues, of course, Paul speaking a very practical language, which I, I love how Paul writes this, you know, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's there's just the information is practical. You can you can practice the information. So he's speaking to the local congregation, his brethren, the faithful is mentioned for that purpose, because in all congregations, you're gonna have some faithful and some who are not, right? And in verse 13 through 20, he says, and we now embark on the screen here with the text, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. From the domain of darkness is important that we recognize the location. A great many individuals, both in the church and outside the church, can't connect this rightly handled text or meaning, context, in which location is being descriptively revealed here by Paul. It's a location. It's a spiritual location that can certainly be seen through our physical eyes. At times, it goes beyond that. It goes within the measure of God's uh, judgment, where well, for instance, though hard for us to believe who are genuine, who have the integrity of an honest, sincere, and humble heart, um, there are individuals who are immersed into Christ, not for the purpose of forgiveness, not for the purpose of redemption or to be added to our Lord's kingdom, but for nefarious, sinister reasons. They do this. They portray this outward masquerade to infiltrate into the local congregation for their own selfish ambitions. Some of them it's jealousy and envy, and man, do those things cause problems in the church. Jealousy and envy. A great many uh, things seen, of course, in my past lives, those closest to me, filled with jealousy and envy, and resulted in betrayal. Sadly, the same in the church happens. Those who might be closest to you, those whom you think are your dearest friends, filled with strife and envy and pride, and that causes, of course, uh, betrayal and division and things that are very sorrowful and disheartening uh, in the church. We need to understand the location darkness, this domain, this is a location that some, of course, uh, who were outside of Christ and who sincerely, who genuinely understood the gospel for the purpose of salvation and the love that they now have for a man who died for us, his love first and foremost towards us, and we get that, and we receive that, and we believe that genuinely. And so we are immersed into Christ 
wherein we become legal citizens of his kingdom. And we're going to see that. But it's important that we understand the location. The domain of darkness is a location. And some individuals of this community, of our community, of the community of the day in which our brethren in Colossae were found, were upstanding members of the community. They were decent individuals, morally upright, law-abiding citizens. They were not participating in all sorts of debauchery and lasciviousness that might have been taking place, nor were high-handedly practicing fornication or adultery, abortion, homosexuality, all those things. They, they were good, what we would, of course, describe as good, decent neighbors of the community. Yet still, spiritually, they would be found in the domain of darkness. Why? Because one, we cannot meritoriously earn our salvation. It's not something we can boast of, even as decent human beings. And we are called to be decent human beings, by the way. The scriptures reveal that very fact. We must, as Christians, be decent human beings. And we'd much rather live within neighborhoods that are decent human beings. Whether they be Christian or not, it's a good thing when they practice the virtues of Christian principles. But that is not the key component to one's salvation. They might be found in the domain of darkness if they believe in falsehoods. If they if they practice a tradition of forefathers religiously, that is not within the doctrine of Jesus Christ. They are found within the domain of darkness. And sadly, some choose to remain within the domain of darkness and infiltrate within the church. And they're sitting with us and we are no wise to their inner hearts, but God is. Sometimes these individuals, of course, take off the mask and show themselves for who they truly are. But some within the church do, do uh, uh, um, allow God to rescue them from this domain of darkness, but then they choose to, within the church at a time, uh, drift off, drift away, fall away. And Paul uses that language most certainly. So it's important, I just wanted to, for us to, to know that the domain of darkness is certainly a location. And there's another location transferred us to the kingdom. The kingdom has ownership, and the ownership, of course, is God's beloved Son, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior. Uh, two different locations. It's not some kind of nebulous abstract where we have no idea, filled with, you know, all kinds of sensational theological uh, uh, gymnastics. No, not at all. It's truly two paths. And the Bible is always speaking of these two paths in various synonymous ways, various descriptors, but it's always two paths. You have the broad gate and you have the narrow gate. That's where you find that. I think Matthew 7, 13, 14. So you have one path, the broad gate, the domain of darkness, and you have the narrow takes a lot of sacrifice, ups, downs, left, rights, shimmy here, shimmy there, you know, got to squeeze in here, got to squeeze in there. It takes a lot of sacrifice is what I'm getting, what I'm saying. Well, that's the kingdom, okay? So you have two locations, two spiritual locations that can be seen through the physical eye in these physical vessels we have. 
And uh, Paul is speaking to his brethren so that they are accurate with the information of the gospel, contrary to what the world is telling them all around them, sadly, through the influence of Judaism, through the influence of heathen, pagan, Gentile, Greek, Roman powers, through, of course, also those within the fold who are masquerading, those within the fold who would be found as individuals uh, with high behavioral delinquencies and worldly views and worldly practices, pride perhaps, and, and uh, envy, jealousy, that kind of stuff as well, who would seek to pervert this information one way or another, or utilize it for their own high-handed preeminence and judgment, things like that. So there's a lot of things to navigate through for these brethren of ours in the first century. Paul wanted to establish there's two locations. You've been rescued from one location and transferred to the other. To be rescued, of course, the idea is, let's say you've been kidnapped. You've been kidnapped and you've been shackled in someone's basement or dungeon, you know, and you've got the thing on your mouth and on your eyes and your hands are tied up, your ankles are tied up, and it's it's cold, it, it, it smells, it's a bad place, it's very dark there. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to die here at the hands of some kind of psychopath, a serial killer of sorts, I don't know, but here I am in this dungeon. To be rescued would be the individual who makes his way in there and says, I'm here to rescue you, and he unties and unbinds uh, the shackles and the and the, the ropes or the, the zip ties, and he, he, he releases uh, the muzzle that you had on your face, you know, perhaps on your mouth and everything. He's like, hey, listen, I'm here to rescue you. Uh, I found you. We've been looking for you. Uh, the murderer is not in the house right now. We need to leave immediately so that the police officers, the law can capture, you know, so that's a rescue. But there's something, though, we must understand with Paul's information here, being rescued is one thing. To be released from the shackles is one thing, but you're still in the dungeon. So what needs to take place? Well, the individual who's rescued you, he's released you from those shackles, from that blind on your mouth and on your eyes and all that. Well, he needs to now take you by the hand and transfer you because you were blindfolded in your captivity and you did not know where you were going. So you do not know where you are at other than the fact that you're in a very bad place. Let me tell you something. That's the illustration to how sin operates. Sin will have you blindfolded, muzzled, shackled, and in a dungeon, and you don't know how you got there, but you got there. Well, there's a lot of little steps that took place to get there, <laughs> obviously. And uh, so here you are, but res being, uh, the, 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 being rescued is not enough. I mean, what if the, the individual has said, okay, now you've been released, you've been rescued from the shackles. Take care, sayonara, bye-bye now. And he just leaves. And you're like, oh, but, but, I don't know where I'm at. So even if you manage to get out of the cave, let's say, or out of the house, you're found in a location you don't know. And so the bad guy, the murderer, can capture you again quite easily, quite, quite quickly. And you don't want that. So you need the individual who's rescued you to actually do something, to take you by the hand and do what? To transfer you to another location. You were found in the domain of darkness. That's one location. You've been rescued. You've been released from the shackles. Now it's time to be transferred to another location. Where? Where there is safety. Where there is security where you will have provisions, all right? Where is that? The kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. And we're going to see in this portion of scripture how the kingdom is also described as the body and also described as the church, all meaning the same location. 
It's the same location we must be found in. Transferred us. Who did that? He, God, through his son, rescued us from a location of death, sin and death, and he transferred us to a location of hope and forgiveness. Life and forgiveness. From sin and death to forgiveness and life. So he transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son because his beloved son has now been given the crown to the kingdom. He holds all authority in heaven and on earth. There is no greater power than Jesus Christ. In whom, it says, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So in is the location we must be found. In whom? In Jesus Christ. And what is this location described as? The kingdom. Why the kingdom? Because the kingdom is a government system. It has politicians, it has politics. We must be submissive and we must be legal citizens of this governing rule. It is not corrupt. It is God-given through his son. So a kingdom has laws. It has rules. It has justice. It has order. And it has those things so we can appreciate and understand things like love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, salvation, faith, all these things together, well-woven, orchestrated, inspired information for us to experience. So the kingdom is government. It's rule. We must be legal citizens of this location. We've been transferred into this location, Paul speaks in whom we have redemption. You and I were bought with a price. We owed a debt we could not pay. So in comes Jesus Christ paying off our debt and redeeming us back to him. We belong to him at conception. At the moment of ensoulment, we belong to God. Innocent, pure, without sin. Then we reach the age of independence and accountability, free will to decide if we will practice what is right or what is wrong. And we choose of our own free will to practice what is wrong, which is sin. And sin, what does that bring? Death. For all have sinned and fallen short. The wages of sin is death. What are you, wa- what are you working hard for? The paycheck. Well, what's the paycheck? Death. That's what sin does. And when we reach the age of independent accountability through, of course, the understanding that we have the intellectual capability of understanding the gospel, for all who do not belong to God automatically, at that moment when we are independently accountable with the intellectual capability of receiving the gospel, understanding the gospel, to ask, seek, and knock, all these attributes of a free will agent, right? We, of course, choose to sin. It's not because it's in our nature to do so, meaning we've been created to sin. Not at all. It's that this flesh has responsibility to it. It has consequence when we allow the flesh to be priority in its desires and not the soul, the inner mind, which is found and must be found governed by God. 
And we do that today through the scriptures, of course. In whom we have redemption, to be redeemed. So here's where that was going. We belong to Jesus. We belong to God at the moment of conception up to the moment in which we choose to sin, which is our independent accountability. Well, from there on out, we must return to God, but we can't because we owe a debt. We have a death sentence. We've worked for a paycheck. The paycheck is death. So who's going to pay that death? Well, no one can pay that debt unless it is from someone who has actually conquered death. You can't pay the debt, D-E-B-T, without having first conquered death, D-E-A-T-H. And who is the firstborn from the dead? Who has conquered death? Jesus. So he's the one who has the right ticket to go to death and say, this individual no longer owes a debt to death. He now belongs to me once again. Isn't that cool? Clear as mud, right? And therein, of course, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. It is impossible for us to be right with God and go to heaven with him one day without the forgiveness of sins. So we've been rescued. We've been transferred, we've been redeemed, and we've been forgiven of our sins. It's not through the means of the influence they would have seen in the first century, through these theologians of the day, these persuaders, these very persuasive, persuasive, eloquent theologians of the day, drenched in all sorts of Greek mythology or uh, Gnostic birthings, or even through the persuasive Jewish element that was still well and alive, prior, of course, to the destruction of 70 AD. For by, oh, well, let's go to verse 15 and keep going. He, the Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the Father the firstborn of all creation. And it's it's quite insightful when we look at other locations of Scripture within the gospel, for say, John chapter 5, where Jesus is explaining, he is revealing the fact that he is equal with the Father. And you see the Father through the Son. And you can't go to the Father without going through the Son. So if you want to know what the Father is doing, you look at what the Son is doing. For the Father's work is being done through the Son's obedience. Father and Son, equal. Equal. So Christ is the image of the invisible God. You want to see the Christ? You will see the Father. For the Father and the Son are one. The firstborn of all creation, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was with, uh, with God. The Word was God. For by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. It's almost as if Paul is saying, contrary to what you've been hearing, contrary to the influence that seeks to contaminate all of you, and some of you have been contaminated and are no longer walking the straight and narrow, but I speak to the faithful so that you will not fall prey to those among you who have drifted away from the faith. 
For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. The things we can both see with our eyes and the things that we cannot see with our eyes, yet we know must have a designer. Look at all the design. Look at the creation. It takes a creator. All of it, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That is for his good pleasure. All that is good created for his good pleasure. This is the power in which we are to be submissive to. And it's not to an overlord, tyrannical dictator or some sort of pharisaical, self-righteous, egotistical maniac, which we sadly see through diatrophic venues in the church among our own kind, wolves in sheep's clothing. None of those, nor the same behavioral delinquency found in some of our governing officials, some of our leaders, whether it be prime minister, president, queen, king, or these individuals of the day through the Roman rule or the Jewish rule. None of those hostile, hostile branches have any authority to what is true and real when it comes to the gospel. The gospel is Christ, and Christ bears all dominion and rule, okay? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, don't be so quickly persuaded by these eloquent, cleverly devised fables. Jesus is God. Christ is God. He is deity. He has always been. He is and will forevermore be. Remember the interaction Jesus had with the religious leaders of the day, constantly pestering him, challenging him, trying to find fault in him, even creating law out of thin air, binding it and finding him guilty of it. All these uh, 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 all this per persecution towards Christ, his interaction regarding who he was, his equality to God and how he has always been, that he is indeed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he is the God of Moses. He's always been. He is before all things. Before this earth was spoken into order, the Christ was. And in him all things hold together. And herein the wonderful dynamic and equality of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's just a beautiful, well-woven, inspired account. He is also head of the body. And here's, a, here's some important information, my dear friends. He is, the Christ, is also head of the body. He is the pinnacle authority of the church. And what is the church? The body. And what is the body? The kingdom. See that there? So you have three descriptors speaking of the same location. The kingdom is government. It's rule. It's order. It's law. It's legal citizenship we must have. The body is its function, its purpose, whether it be the toe, the finger, the ear, the eye, the head, the shoulders, the arm. Whatever. It has utility. It has purpose. And the church, of course, is the called out location, the ecclesia, of course, the location in which those uh, who have been called out, rescued and transferred, right, into this location. What is that? Family, unity, fellowship, 
You see how these three words speak of the same location? But they are utilized in various branches of description for us to have greater insight into what it is exactly we've been transferred into. And he is the beginning. He is the beginning. Not only was he there in the beginning, he is the beginning. He's the firstborn of the dead, from the dead. Remember what we were speaking about? How we've been redeemed? We owe a debt we cannot pay. That debt is death. Only one can release us, redeem us, purchase us back. That is Christ. Why? Because he's the firstborn from the dead. He conquered death. All others who would have been raised from the dead. Case in point, Lazarus had to die again. Why? Sin. Jesus had no sin, though he was tempted and challenged in all things that you and I have been. And that gives us a connection with Jesus personally, that he understands our, our challenges, our temptations. He chose not to sin. He's the firstborn from the dead. He conquered death, D-E-A-T-H. So he is the sole source to release us from our debt, D-E-B-T. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. It won't be Moses. It won't be Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. It won't be the angels. It won't be anything else. It'll be Jesus. He has all authority. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. All things. Look at the various ways Paul describes his master, whom he loves. We be wise to follow that example. God is one who rescues, who transfers us. He is one who redeems us and forgives us. He is one who has conquered death, who holds all power. He, is in the, he was in the beginning and he is the beginning. He has all authority. All things are held together in him. The governing rule, the purpose, the function, the family. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, all laid bare for him, beginning and end. And through him, to reconcile all things to himself. We, were, we chose to alienate ourselves from him. Remember, when we got to the age of independent accountability with the intellectual capability to choose right from wrong, we chose wrong. We became hostile towards God. We went away from him. But through his son, we can be reconciled. To God, having made peace through the blood of his cross, therein the power. There's power in the blood, power in the blood. The shed sacrifice of his body and blood through the willful obedience to his father. Shame. 
to be mocked, ridiculed, to be whipped, to have his flesh torn, spat upon, falsely accused, betrayed, abandoned. The deep cost to our salvation, the blood on that cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Because there is a spiritual battle in the Hadean realm, in the heavenly atmosphere, location, both here in what is visible and in the next, in the other, what is invisible. God holds all power, his son, all authority on heaven and on earth with the things we see and the things we don't see. And Paul was speaking to brethren who had obeyed the gospel. Brethren who had done what was necessary to become recipients of this rescue, this transfer, this redemption, this forgiveness. All the spiritual blessings found in Christ. And Paul would not uh, um, would not uh, um, what do you what, how could I say that? He would not forget to say at what very moment an individual was indeed rescued, transferred, redeemed, forgiven. And he spoke it to the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, and I quote, Having been buried with Jesus in immersion, in baptism, being fully buried in water, which represents the tomb of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Romans 6, 3 and 4. This here, the moment, of course, of one's birth into Christ, out of water and the Spirit, clothed with Christ, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Peter understood this very well in Acts 2, 38 and 1 Peter 3, 21. Christ spoke this very commandment in Mark 16, 16. Friends, Christians who receive that descriptive name through their birth, because that is the family name, Christian, they received it upon being immersed into Christ. Contrary to any, any, other op any opposition to this reality, it, it it stands true, and it will be forevermore true. There is no other way into the location, the kingdom, the body, the church, and there are no gatekeepers. There is no pope, priest, reverend, pastor, mom, dad, neighbor, co-worker that is to be found between you and God. That is what we would call idolatry. There is but one source and path to the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the head of his church, the body. He is king of his kingdom, the location we must be found in. And what is the door he spoke of that enters? He is the door. Where do we find him? 
right there where he spoke it, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Who raises you from the dead? Does the water do that? Does the individual helping you go down into the water do that? Or does God do that? What does Colossians chapter 2 verse 12 say? It says, With him through faith in the working of God. Faith in the Bible is an active verb. It is something you do. It's not a uh, nebulous, blind, unactive word in the Bible. In the Bible, faith without works is dead. Faith alone is dead. It has no active agencies to bring about God's work in your soul. It's a spiritual operation Paul is speaking of in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. There is no contradiction here. The individual who has been born again has passively submitted himself to God's work to be saved. There is nothing he can meritoriously earn or boast about. He is simply allowing his soul to be plunged, dipped, submerged, baptizo, into that water which represents the grave. We need not become thieves and physically be nailed to a cross, expecting Christ to walk again on this earth, to be nailed once again next to us to find salvation. No, all we need to do is believe in Him. Repent of our sins. Confess Him as our Lord and Master, our Ruler qualifying us to receive salvation as we are immersed, calling on his name, for therein is the authority, therein is the work. And this is the baptism, the one baptism Paul spoke to the Christians in Ephesus. The other baptisms were not for us. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Christ himself on the cross, John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism, all these other baptisms were not for us. For you and I today, it is the very one Paul speaks of in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. It is the one he spoke to his brethren in Galatia. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 27. Dear brethren, that's the truth. And for all of you out there who might be seeking, don't take my word for it. Just read the Bible for yourself. You do not need a gatekeeper. And sadly for us Christians, there are brethren in the church that make themselves up to be out to be gatekeepers. They keep that key. They'll, they'll try to manipulate you and make you think that you need them to understand the Bible. You don't. You can read it for yourself. Is it an expedient when a faithful gospel preacher is available? Absolutely. But it is not necessary. You can read these words. I've experienced it organically from a mind simply opening this book and reading the words therein and studying it for oneself to come to the conclusion of the truth, which sets us free, John 8.32. But it has to be the word, John 8.31. Rescued and transferred. It's available to all souls. All souls. It does not matter which language you speak, which geographical location you were born and raised, which religious background you come from, which skin color you have. 
all have the opportunity, who are independently accountable and have the intellectual capability. If you do not have the intellectual capability, then you have nothing to worry about. You belong to God. If you are found before the age of independent accountability, you have nothing to worry about. Children belong to God. But for you and I, who understand very well these words, you and I are held accountable, and we must be right with God. God holds justice. God holds compassion and mercy. But we must do our part, not because we can earn anything. But as Jesus would say, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do you take care of your children? Do you provide for them because you have to, but you really wouldn't want to? Or do you do it because you love them? Are you meritoriously earning anything? If they don't love you back, would you still love them? Of course you would. If we love Jesus, we'll do what he has told us to do. And he will rescue us and transfer us into the location of his kingdom as legal citizens. It's available. You want to know more? Want to have a study? Contact us at itssouls.com. If you are a Christian and you understand very well the language I'm speaking, and you agree with the Bible wholeheartedly, you're looking for good work to partake in, please consider signing up to addedsouls.locals.com. It's free to sign up, but once you are there, you have the opportunity to support. No amount is too small, no amount is too big. Support goes, of course, for the growth of the Added Souls ministry through the Maya family and the mission fields for the gospel purpose to grow wherever we may roam so that added souls is active and moving forward. It's a good work. You'll have the, the ability over at addedsouls.locals.com to have exclusive content. You'll have updates and reports. We can have ourselves a phone conversation, a video chat, email exchange. Please consider supporting. It is necessary and it's a good work. You can also send a donation through PayPal, addedsouls at gmail.com. You can also contact me through my email if you are seeking for an address or to have a conversation. This is for the Christians, those of you who have been born again into Christ. The gospel is free, but someone has to buy the book. Someone has to pay for the light bills. And I think, I think if we are reasonable human beings, we understand that. You are loved. We pray for you. We are thankful for all of you who do support and pray for us. I hope this message finds you well, that you find substance in your spiritual walk to share, to subscribe to, to follow. And uh, Lord willing, we shall certainly see each other again tomorrow morning, 8 a.m. for the next day on our itinerary. And if you want to know what the itinerary for the week is, please check it out in the show notes. We go live from Monday to Friday. 8 a.m. Atlantic Daylight Time, and each day has a theme, and you might find some interest there. All right, stay focused, stay positive. Till next time, God bless.